0: Hey there again. My name's Nick. Like I said a minute ago, um, and if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you may or may not have heard that we're in the middle of a four-part series. And uh, so today, this was supposed to be Pastor Brad unpacking it with our resident counselor and doctor, Pastor Scott Kennedy. Um, and if you know, yeah, you got one fan. <laughs> um, and if you, I'll give you your
1: money later. Thanks.
0: <laughs> if you know. Uh, Anything like Pastor Brad said, like this is so awkward and so uncomfortable with him. And so yesterday, Pastor Brad told us all that he was sick. And so (laughs) here we are. uh, I'm filling in for him and someone's filling in for me and the the whole musical chairs. But in all seriousness, pray for him. He came down with the flu and he's going on vacation in two days. So we'd love to let him go on vacation. (laughs) So um, anyway, so it's going to be me and Pastor Scott. And we're going to unpack the Q&A, the questions that we all received uh, from you guys, honestly, and so uh, as you know, we uh, tackled the three biblical reasons for divorce, and we said the triple A, right? So abandonment, uh, adultery, and abuse. And so the one that we have not unpacked because it's the most nuanced, because there's so much to it, and because the Bible doesn't speak directly or or super clearly about it is abuse. And so um, we're going to talk through that, and that's going to be the very first question. I wanted to start Scott off with a softball and be like, all right, man, here's the easy one. Knock it out of the park, all right? So we're going to take about 10 minutes or so and walk through some of the nuance of abuse. We put together a word doc, and we're happy to give it out to anyone who wants it. And Scott wrote another word doc that's closer to a dissertation on the whole subject matter. So we've condensed what Scott wrote and put it into a shorter couple of pages. And so what I want to say is, this is a tough question, and if there's any of you out there going through it or you know someone, we don't want to take it lightly. We want you to know and hear from me and from Pastor Scott that we care and we want to come alongside and show grace and mercy and compassion and all those things. Um, and so, as we try to answer some of these questions, they may come across very black and white and very uh, impersonal. But know that they're not. And know that we desire to journey through this with you and to walk alongside you as you go through these things. So I want you to hear that, that caveat. In the area of divorce, or I'm not sorry, not divorce, abuse specifically, um, there are like a multi- multitude of dynamics. So here's an example. In divorce, you or in oh, divorce, abuse, I'm sorry. You may have two people married, both believers. You may have a believer and a, a professing believer, but maybe there's no fruit in his life or her life to show that. You may have a believer and an unbeliever, and then you may have two unbelievers. So even from that standpoint, understand that there's so many nuances and so many dynamics to this. And so we're trying to take a complex issue and distill it and boil it down to a 10-minute conversation. So give us grace uh, as we do that. And, um, and then I threw Scott out to the wolves after first service to go... Uh, defend his answers. And so you guys will get a chance to do that again after this service. So let me pray for wisdom and all that stuff, and then I'm gonna let Scott take it away on the issue of abuse. Lord, thank you for this time, and God, I pray that you would give us grace, humility, uh, help us to be true to you and to your word and what your word has to say, Um, and help uh, us as we navigate this, and help uh, everyone as they're listening to, to hear what we intend to, to say and hear what the Bible says about this. Not our opinions, uh, not our church stance, but God, what your word has to say because that's really where our authority comes from. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, man, take amen. it away.
1: Well, um... Somebody told me after the first service that I speak really fast. I'm a Southerner, so I might outdo Brad just to let you know, okay, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. But um, just reiterating what Pastor Nick said, I do hate simplistic answers, and unfortunately in this time slot, it's all we can do. So there are just too many variables to consider, but we're going to try our best here. So I'm going to start out with the definition of abuse, Um, and I'm, I'm actually gathering that I got this from a book called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage critical questions and answers, and normally when I'm in a book like that, there are lots of questions that they don't answer. And so um, we deal with biblical commands, and then we try to build out biblical principles to answer these, and so here we go. So abuse, broadly defined, is an improper and harmful treatment of one person by another. There are different kinds of abuse in varying degrees. That's important. There are different types of abuse or kinds of abuse in varying degrees, including physical abuse, behavior that results in the non-accidental injury of the victim— Sexual abuse, verbal abuse, and emotional abuse. Abusive actions and words typically come from fleshly hearts. That means evil desires that lead to ultimately evil behavior, evil actions. And there are a multitude of verses. Galatians 5 talks about fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh or deeds of the flesh. James 4, we, we've gone through a lot of these. So, so let, me, let me say this physical, verbal, and emotional types of abuse are contrary to God's design for marriage, first and foremost. All right, it's suppo- marriage is supposed to uh, reflect love and grace, which you see with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, instead of anger and hatred. And, and so anytime there's anger and hatred there, obviously, it's, obviously that's contrary to God's word. And so um, let, me, let me say this as well. We're pastors, and we're trying to give ethical answers to pastoral questions. And there's no question like this exactly in Scripture in every way. Um, but the Bible commands us to weep with those who weep. And so in, in, in a marriage where there is suffering, I don't care from who, I mean, everybody returns evil for evil at some point. But most of the time, in, in the context we're talking about physical abuse there, there's a lot of suffering going on there. And so in, in all forms of abuse. And so we want to weep with those who weep. We want to recognize this is painful. This is difficult. This is, this is not good. This is not God's design. Okay. Yeah. So regardless, uh, I, I want you to hear that front. We, yeah. we hate it. We do. And in a broken world, we still see it, though. And so we want, what we want to do is the Bible, God gives us the law, and, and the law is supposed to govern, at least Israel as a covenant people, is supposed to regulate how they live with one another. Well, in the New Testament, Romans 13, let me just say this. Paul says, um, ultimately, the goal of the law, the fulfillment of the law is love. Love does no wrong to your neighbor. Yeah. And so marriage is a context with the closest neighbor you can have. And so ultimately, from a pastoral perspective, we don't want either neighbor doing wrong to one another. But often in the case of abuse, we know it's one, more one-sided. And so we, ha- we, 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 we want to bring glory to God and good to people. That's the goal. Okay, so um, typically when we think of abuse, there's a strong man and a weaker woman. But it can be flipped around as well. It can go both ways. Um, physical more, more that way but, but it can go either way and it's always a sin to cause bodily harm to your spouse now I have a lot of verses I could share with that even from 1 Corinthians 7 where we were but let's just use Ephesians 5 speaking to a husband but can be applied toward the wife as well so husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his own wife loves himself so he's supposed to love his wife as his own body for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. So we see that when you harm your neighbor physically, um, you're not cherishing, nourishing, you're not, you're not honoring them, you're not doing what God asks you to do. And so that's sinful. So I could go on, uh, but I don't really think I have to build a case too much for that, that we believe that's sinful, that we believe that's wrong, biblically prohibited to harm your neighbor physically in this regard. Yeah. Statistically, it's tr- extremely rare that there will be a one-time occasion for this. Okay, So here's the part a lot of people don't understand. The Bible gives us clear command... Um, there are multiple ordained institutions of authority. There's the home, there's the church, there's the state. And when it comes to physical abuse, it's a crime. And there are other forms of abuse, sexual abuse, there are other forms of abuse as well. So what do we, what do we say as pastors? Call the police, file a report, get a restraining order, and seek immediate temporary separation for protection of you. Yeah. Okay. Bottom line first and foremost, okay? Why call the police and get law enforcement involved? Let me share something a lot of people don't realize that Scripture says about the state, okay? When you think about anything governmental, think about what Paul says. Always go to the Word first and say, what does God say? If He designed government, what's its role? Not all the things you want. What is His primary purpose in government? Romans 13, Paul says this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now listen. For rulers are not a cease of fear for good behavior. Could happen, but that's not what God designed them for. But for evil. And what we're talking about is evil. Black and white, evil. Okay? Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister. Do You hear that? The government is a minister of God or a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword, which means punishment, for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That's the role of government, Paul says. And evil practices and evil deeds, especially when it comes to abuse, come with consequences. Okay, so... You're a stay-at-home mom, or you say, I don't work, or I don't know where to go, or I can't support myself. That's what the New Testament church comes alongside of you, okay? The government has its role. We're there to help you, yeah. okay? We're there to support you. And, and so what does that mean? Well, let me, let me back up in 1 Corinthians when we were going through it. 1 Corinthians 5 says that the body of Christ is like a loaf of bread. So when we come together for the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We've got all these broken pieces of the body. And, and why Paul says we're coming together, we're showing that instead of a bunch of pieces, we're one loaf. We're connected together for each other's good and God's glory. And so in in Paul talking about this in in 1 Corinthians, he says um, this one loaf is like a loaf of bread. And if there's leaven in that that loaf, it'll permeate the whole loaf. And it's bad. He's using leaven as as an example of sin. And sin permeates the whole thing. So abuse in, in regard to sin... Affects the whole loaf there. So as believers and leadership, according to Matthew 18 and Matthew, or 1 Corinthians 5, we're supposed to remove that, that habitual offending sinner because it's affecting the whole body. It's doing damage. The other side of this equation we haven't gotten to is First Corinthians 12, where you actually get the biblical reasoning for being connected. We use the word connected a lot. The reason to be connected to the body is because the body is connected together for care. It's Christ's body, and when one part of your body suffers, every part is supposed to suffer with it. Ever hurt? Your, you ever hit your little pinky toe? Is that the only part that feels the pain? Okay, that's the way this body analogy Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, so that there may, may be no division, that means they're connected in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another, the same care for one another. So if one person in the body is suffering in their home, and they're part of this body, a believer, should we care? Yes. hmm Okay, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Let me give you a few more examples. James 1. James is one of those books that hits hard. It doesn't want you to be deceived about what God desires. Okay, So James says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, or our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. God is concerned about his children who are in distress. He hates oppression. We know God hates divorce. Guess what? God hates injustice as well. Yeah. Okay? First Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, not just the pastors, brethren. Okay? Admonish unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. If you're in a home suffering in a marriage, you're faint-hearted at times. And help the weak. We have to come to the aid to help the weak. Be patient with everyone. So that's a few places in scripture to talk about how we're supposed to help and care for the body. Okay, number two, we try to call the sin in response spouse, the, the abusing spouse, the offending spouse into repentance. What they're doing is wrong, and we want them to know it. We want to surround that person's suffering and let them know, okay? This goes back to our conversation last week. The church is there to protect the spouse physically. We call the police, we get them involved. That's what they do best investigating things. We're not investigators, we're not private detectives, we're not law enforcement, we're pastors. <laughs> We are called to shepherd the flock. And part of that shepherd is, is to use the resources God has given to protect people. Okay? We, pl- we are there to play a role to protect you spiritually as well. Because no matter what's coming at you physically, your heart is being affected as well. Mm-hmm. When you're suffering, you're going to be asking questions. You're going to be wondering where God is and why this is happening and all these things. We want to help you. We want to help you not lean on your own understanding. We want to help you walk through this with other people to know that you're cared and loved. Because suffering is bad enough, but suffering in isolation is horrible. Yeah. Especially in regard to your marriage. Okay? So the the sinning spouse is abandoning the remaining spouse. So so let me say this. We talked about abandonment. In this context, physical danger, we're actually removing or trying to get the person to remove themselves from that danger there. And so even though the spouse may be wanting to control the situation and actually doesn't want consent to leave, they have consented to hurt the person and they're causing abandonment by that. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. They've actually forced the abandonment by their activity and their behavior and their words. And if law enforcement comes in and removes them from that situation, there, there is an
0: abandonment that's taking place there. Okay. And the reason, the reason, I'll stop you that, abandonment is important. If you remember, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse was one of the, the grounds for a biblical divorce. And so that's why we're trying to get to a spot where, can we call this abandonment?
1: Yes. Abandon, yeah, abandonment by, like I said, we, we believe adultery. And, and pornay or sexual immorality, and that, you know, there are lots of nuances there, so we have to think to that real carefully. Um, it, God it, it permits divorce, but doesn't command it, and yeah. the same with abandonment. In yeah. this case, uh, abandonment, we think this is enlarged through abuse as well. Okay, yeah. so we want to protect physically and spiritually, yeah. okay? The sin and spouse is forced abandonment, and so that's the position we have. Um, chapter 5 tells us why. Church discipline was enacted. There was sexual immorality going on in the church. That's the context for chapter 5 that Pastor Bradge uh, went through uh, weeks and weeks ago. And here's what Paul said. We deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In that context, there's a professing believer who is living like an unbeliever, so we call him a so-called believer. And we remove him from the body of Christ because they're doing damage to the body of Christ. And in that case, what we're hoping for, that if, if that is a genuine believer, they will repent and come back into the fold. But the reason Paul says he hands them over Satan is because Satan is the ruler of this world. He is over this world. All evil deeds and desires are motivated by his influence in this world. And so if somebody responds that way, we can't see inside their heart to know if they're a believer. But what we can judge is their actions and activities. And what they're doing is wrong. So we want to try to remove them from the situation there. The church is called to confront sin and comfort sufferers. So, let me say this. Physical abuse, especially but limited to ongoing abuse, should lead to a forced separation and church discipline should be enacted. Okay? If there's not repentance under the guidance of the elders and multitude of counsel, we will believe the abuse spouse is permitted to divorce the sinning spouse. As with most problems in marriage, as we've already said, <laughs> there are so many factors to take into account. Okay. So, let's suppose that one of the questions is, well, that person says they repented. So, that, that's what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. So, how do you know? Well, we want to watch... As leaders of the church who are given oversight and held accountable for your care, we want to watch what's going on. We want to have enough evidence to see if there's fruit in keeping with repentance. Because sometimes physical abusers are very controlling and manipulative, and they can use the church care to actually do greater harm to the people that are suffering. We don't want that to happen, that would be unjust. And so we want to come in and help, see the situation, navigate the situation. Um, And a large amount of time would probably have to pass with mountains of evidence to prove that godly sorrow, especially depending on the the degree and severity of the abuse, would have taken place. This means that the person would have to become more known for their repentance than their sin. Does that make sense? Okay. So what about incarceration? Well, incarceration, once again, they consented to do the action. They may not have consented to be separated, but their action has led to separation. And so that violates 1 Corinthians 7, and so we believe that that could lead to a divorce as well, especially in light of the fact that they've done evil, as the Bible says. Okay, so what about emotional and verbal abuse? Let me move fast. Here again, there's way, way, way too many issues to discuss here. Okay, and injustice of any kind is wrong, and God hates... Uh, evil and he hates sin and he hates in marriage where it's supposed to reflect christ's love for his bride what, what could be taking place there so we want we want to lay that out there but we need a lot more information to navigate through this so let me say this we will do from pastor's perspective, everything biblically permissible and possible, and let me add profitable to help save a marriage without doing injustice to the offended spouse does that make sense? We want to do good to the spouse, but we want to help the marriage if possible. And that sometimes is a long process. While these are sinful issues that need to be addressed, they do not necessitate abandonment as in protection of the spouse. So we, we want to be careful there. And we want to ask the abused spouse to seek counsel and wisdom from us, um, and, as well as leaders around them. So let me, let me say this. If the abused wife or family lives under the threat of severe emotional distress, and I've seen lots of varying circumstances that don't fit tidy, Okay. If they're under the threat of severe emotional distress or the point of fearing for their safety, we would advise them to file for a legal separation. Okay? And the church to be involved in that process. We, we always wanted to see if we can get repentance, reconciliation, restoration, but sometimes that's not the case. Paul and Barnabas had a split. Okay? On this side of eternity, sometimes sin and the hardness of man's hearts leads to these things. And so we we want to do we want to bring glory to God, do what's right in His sight, and 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 do good to others. Okay. So open habitual and unrepentant sin, the church will enact church discipline.
0: Mm-hmm. So the point we want you to hear in all of this is this is Scott's favorite verse. Don't lean on your own understanding, but instead lean on the understanding that God has placed in your care, uh, pastors and elders and wise counsel. So we don't want you to say, hey, here's the answer. Now go do it. But we want to encourage you, implore you, and remind you that anonymity is the enemy of discipleship. So you need to be known, and you need to involve the body in this decision. You need to involve pastors, leaders, elders, your group that you're in, whatever the case may be. That is really the key. And the the point is we're trying to give a black and white answer to something that has varying, varying degrees of nuance. And so involve involve the leadership, and that's why church membership is so important. You have submitted yourself to the, the leadership that God has put in your place as the church. So, all right. There's, there's the abuse thing. So easy, right? We were supposed to take 12 minutes. We took 20. All right. <laughs> so we're going to tear through uh, the rest of the questions. Um, we're going to go as fast as we can but also be as clear as we can. Here's the first question that we got. Is interracial marriage a sin? Quick answer, No. Okay, um, you what you may get, um, or what you may use as a basis for that argument is Deuteronomy seven, three, and four which says you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters uh, for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. In Deuteronomy, understand that this was God speaking to the nation of Israel, and he was not concerned about the race as much as he was concerned about who they were following. So this was a spiritual issue, and he didn't want them to be unequally yoked with people who were following other gods. And so I say as a student pastor all the time, not only because it's my opinion, but it's because it's the Bible's opinion too. Like, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So as soon as I find a student who's dating someone, my first question to them is, do they love Jesus? And tell me about that. And so we we believe that wholeheartedly, and that was really more the issue going on in Deuteronomy. So is interracial marriage a sin? No.
1: Okay. Question two. If your spouse passes away and you remarry later, which partner do you spend eternity with? Or do you even spend eternity with someone? So we could, we, I could make this longer. I'll make it shorter. Matthew 22, 23 through 33 says, when we're in heaven, we'll be like the angels, not in marriage or given in marriage. Okay, so we're married to Christ as the church. He's the groom. We're the bride. Right now we live in the imperfect so marriage, actually, Paul says, so you don't see this anywhere. You see God, it, like this relationship with God and his spouse in, in Israel. But Paul, writing in Ephesians 5 about marriage, says, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. I'm using your marriage to show you what Christ and his relationship with his church is. And so that's the goal of heaven. The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, heart has not understood or interpreted all that God has store, in store for those who love him. That's our relationship in heaven.
0: Yeah. Next question. What is the point where we should talk about forgiveness for divorce versus discipline? So understand that if someone is uh, pursuing an unbiblical or sinful divorce, that's where church discipline. Would come in. So if the person is in that pursuit of that repentance, um, or the 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 fruit of repentance, because that's the purpose of church discipline, is to lead that person to repentance. Repentance would look like them uh, abandoning the pursuit of that divorce and pursuing reconciliation. So then at that point, there would be no need for church discipline, and forgiveness would have taken place. Pastor Brad talked about it a couple weeks ago. What if you uh, look up right now and you're like, man, I realize a past divorce is unbiblical and now I'm remarried, what should I do? Paul says, First Corinthians 7, stay as you are in the state that you are in, repent of that sin in the past, but now live in God's new mercies that are new to us every morning, Lamentations 3. And so um, that's where you no longer need to continue to pursue discipline at that point, but you can live in forgiveness and repentance for that. Oh, i do the next one too. Yeah, you're going to roll. All right, if you've lost a young spouse, what does the Bible say about remarriage and why do I feel guilty? So remarriage is... Totally acceptable, totally fine first uh, corinthians seven thirty nine answers it as well as romans seven three through four uh, but the guilt we listen we get it it 's understandable, um, but also be careful uh, to to not put guilt on um, something that is not meant to put guilt on you and so uh, Scott said this first service, the Bible is our standard, and so if if the bible doesn 't um, prescribe a reason for you to feel guilty, there's no reason for you to. There may be worldly and fleshly things inside you that are causing you to feel that way, but there is really no reason uh, to feel that way. Yeah, is God's that, our judge. Yeah. It's
1: his law. He's the one that evaluates us ultimately. So objective guilt is it's objective, and you can feel shame and subjective <clears throat> guilt from what other people are, you know, just your own imagination, your own thoughts, but we want to, we want to be biblical. So, okay, so is it always necessary to receive premarital counseling before marriage? I've heard conflicting viewpoints, and I'm not sure what to do. Well, I can tell you as a pastor and a counselor, yes. (laughs) Um, Let let me say this. Uh, I love my wife. We've been married 21 years. But if I knew now what I, I mean, if somebody had helped me see some blind spots as far as how to love my neighbor well, um, it would have changed things. Probably accelerated the pace of really loving her the way I do today. um, And it wouldn't have taken as long because I'm a slow learner. But um, let, let me give you an example. Simple, mundane things that you that you participate in every day uh, will will eventually become div- division points. So I, I'll, I'll often in premarriage counseling uh, try try to get holidays on the on the on the sheet to talk about. Okay, so you guys are married now. Where are you going to go next Thanksgiving, next Christmas, next Easter? What's your meal going to be? Where are you going to sleep? What are you going to do? Da 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 da. And before you know it, they don't they don't they, they think everything's peachy, and they're like, oh. No, we always do this on Thanksgiving. No, we always do this on Christmas. Well, guess what? Now you're in a marriage where you combine in both partners into one relationship. Yeah. and there's a lot. That's just one thing that you're going to experience every year. How many kids? Uh, how, guess what? You know what I found out? I'm, I know I'm going to elaborate on this, but this is funny to me. Do you know there's a right <laughs> and wrong way to wash dishes in your house? <clears throat> Did you know that? My wife used a sponge when we got married. And I used a, a, a dish rag. You're and of right, course my way. law said it, well, I was right so it took me like 12 years to, to actually humble myself and say I'll try it her way and guess what I like her way better now but it's just so stupid, but there are so many <laughs> blind spots when you marry another person because you're taking their world and your world and combining them together. And also, in addition, your personalities and your thoughts and your desires. And, and some strongholds are blind spots. And so that Matthew 7 says, guess what? I have the ability to see little tiny specks of my neighbor's eye and miss logs them on. So we're there to help you see the logs so you can take it to the lumber mill,
0: okay? <laughs> uh, also, for every premarriage counseling request, that, or for every, I'm sorry, officiating request of a, a wedding, we require premarriage counseling as pastors of LHC, and one thing that we've adopted within this last calendar year is we want to walk through premarriage counseling before we agree um, to perform the wedding. So in the event that, you know, we don't think it might be a good idea or whatever, we can counsel that before we've agreed to something. And then this is our brand new, like within two weeks, uh, new pre counseling kind of track. So we'll, we'll walk through this book with whoever does that. So 100% as pastors and as staff, we, we stand behind that. Um, the next question I already answered, if someone realizes through this series their prior divorce was sinful, but they're now remarried, what would you say to them now? Repent and live in God's grace that is uh, available to you today. Wow,
1: that was fast. Yeah. Okay, let me see if I can go as fast on this one. What if you're not a Christian when you get married, but become Christians later? When would the Holy Spirit enter your covenant? Let's just, we can make this one quick. Okay, the Holy Spirit dwells in each believer. Uh, if a marriage is made up of two believers, the Holy Spirit is in your covenant.
0: There you go. Is it a sin for a divorced single parent to have sex in the context of a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship? Yes, it is a sin. Um, the Bible ordains the only place for sex or sexual activity to take place is within the confines um, of marriage. And so that is the, the relationship in the one place that it's supposed to take place. So if it's taking place outside of that context, then 100% it's a sin.
1: What you go to do nine as well? Just roll with
0: it. <laughs> uh, if uh, two Christians are married and one decides to leave while you're still married um, and enters a relationship with another person, would that be considered an affair or adultery and give you the biblical rights for divorce? Yes, that would be adultery because, again, you are breaking uh, that covenant and you are uh, outside of the confines of marriage. And so in cases of adultery, like we said in Matthew 19, divorce is not required, but it is permitted. And so if that is the case, then that would be uh, considered adultery. The next one's mine as well. Go ahead. All right, man. You're the counselor here. (laughs) Uh, If both uh, partners are in agreement, is watching pornography sinful? So let's give a definition of what that is. So pornography, the first part of the word porne means immorality. And the second part, graph, means to write or draw or portray. So put those two together. Pornography is about picturing, imagining, fantasizing about immorality. Is that wrong? Yes, absolutely it's wrong. So fantasizing and immorality, all those things are wrong. And so we know that from Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if you look upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so what's going on here in this situation where both partners are in agreement <coughs> is yes, there is sinfulness taking place. And so uh, another thing that's really helpful, I think, in this is Proverbs chapter five, fifteen through 21. says that... Uh, Sex is, or I'm sorry, marriage is the place to gratify those desires, those sinful, there's those sexual desires, not sinful, those sexual desires. Um, and so all things, all things in that kind of arena, in that field, uh, are to take place in the confines of marriage. So Proverbs 5 says, drink water from your own cistern. And so if you're watching pornography, obviously that's not within the confines of your marriage. So
1: Good, so you got us up to... Up to speed, so that's good. So yeah, we caught quiet. up. <laughs> okay. Uh number eleven. If someone never engages in a physical sexual act with someone other than if, if someone never engages in a physical sexual act with someone other than a spouse but fantasizes about being with someone else someone else, is it considered adultery? Um well, let me rephrase the question, okay? We know, we know this is not good, but does it please, let me ask it like this. One of our memory verses my first year here was, I want to get it clear, because you can, you can always strive for this. What is our ambition, Paul says? Make your ambition, whether home or here, absent or home, okay, to be pleasing the Lord. So I want to rephrase the question, because sometimes people want to get close enough to the line and say, is this permissible? Let me ask you this. Does it please the Lord for a married person to sexually fantasize about someone other than their spouse? No. Okay, Matthew five twenty-eight and Proverbs five from above would certainly help answer this. While it may not be adultery in deed, it is most definitely adultery and desire in desire. One's heart. Clearly, this does not please the Lord. It's also coveting something that doesn't belong to you or someone who doesn't belong to you. Exodus twenty deals with that. <clears throat>
0: You got the next
1: one. Oh, yeah, I do have the next one. Okay, if a spouse finds out about infidelity from years ago then works for years to fix marriage but just never gets fixed and trust is broken, is there a statute of limitations? I want to answer this from two perspectives. Okay, once again, I want to say this. If you're in a marriage that has been uh, affected by infidelity and you are working to try to fix that, um, look, we weep with you. Mm -hmm. We weep with you because you're trying to do what you think honors the Lord. Um, l- let me say this, though. So. Scripture does not seem to give us any statute of limitations. Why? Because each person's different. And, you, and the, the process of going through this, we won't, marriage is built on trust, and, and so trust has been broken. So each situation is different. So we don't have a one-size-fits-all. In three weeks, you need to be this point or this point because the Bible doesn't say that. Each person is different. Jesus ministered to every different person different ways. And so we, we, we try to take Scripture and realize who you are and apply it to you. So, so in the context of this, we want to realize that it may be a process um, working through difficult circumstances with wisdom and, and the leaders of the church. And so we don't have a time frame on it. However, you need to be moving in a direction if you're trying to be r- forgive if repentance has taken place, you want to see if reconciliation can take place. So you've given them over to the Lord from the heart. Now you need to see if you can trust them horizontally as far as the way they're dealing with. Is, is the relationship trustworthy? Or, or, or are they still um, not taking the sin seriously? Are they still doing things that aren't wrong? And at some point you may say, I, I, I just can't get over this. Okay? In the context of what we've already shared in adultery, um, then God doesn't command you to leave your spouse but you're permitted to so that's one side at the same time if you tell us as leaders you're moving in that direction we want to help you understand what forgiveness is and work through that we want to try to help you with this and realize recognize that it's hard and that we 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 really 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 wrestle with what you're weeping and going through okay but you can't use it as a weapon okay so at some point, we're moving you along. We want to see if you're learning how to forgive. And look, if you don't get there, then, then God gives you the freedom for that. But you can't stay in an indefinite situation where that always keeps coming back up because it will poison any reconciliation and, and, and basically a um, restoration of the marriage.
0: Yeah. All right, next question. I persuaded a woman to have an abortion. I knew the child was mine, but I wanted out of the relationship and the responsibility of the child. Where do I stand with God for doing such things? We would counsel, repent of sinful desires and deeds and receive God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins that he is faithful and just, he will forgive us our sins and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the truth of God's word is that there is no sin uh, that has stained you so deeply that it cannot be washed by the blood of Jesus. And so grace is for all people and grace is for people who make mistakes and who have sinned. And so repent of that and live in um, that mercy that he gives to us. The next question Can married couples have or keep friendships with members of the opposite sex? Now, this is a great question, um, and I think that the Bible doesn't speak 100% black and white about it. It's not like the 11th commandment or anything like that. But as we pull the wisdom from all the different parts and pieces of God's word and put this together, um, one thing we want to do is we want to avoid all appearances of evil, first and foremost. Um, Also understand that relational intimacy always precedes physical intimacy. Now, don't hear me saying that if there's relational intimacy, it will automatically result in physical intimacy. But to get to physical intimacy, first, relational intimacy always comes before that. And so the goal of dealing with temptation is to minimize it and not entertain it. In Proverbs it says, who among you can take hot coals to his chest and not be burned? And so what it's saying is, well how, like, are you going to play with fire? Are you going to continue to subject yourself to this? And so under the banner of avoiding and reducing sexual temptation, and because of the the scripture's warning to sexual temptation, it's incredibly unwise uh, for people to to be in relationship with someone of the opposite gender. I think, I know Scott obviously thinks that very strongly, and so traveling, staying overnight together, those types of things, um, even if it's work-related. Listen, Bible commands us to, to let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality, and we also know that scripture is our standard not what's worldly and so even if it's considered weird or in opposition to your workplace or any of those types of things know that they're not your ultimate authority god's word is and so that's that's what we'd say
1: yeah we want to remember satan is crafty in the garden he deceived eve the bible says he's like a roaring lion waiting to devour someone who's weak so don't ever think he he can't get you somehow okay I, I get a lot of exercise. We were, we were going this last week. Um, I had to take the flight of stairs multiple times because I didn't want to be on the elevator with a female by myself. Because you never know. There's no witness. There's no, so there's no accountability there. So just, just be wise. Don't be foolish, as the scripture says. Okay, common law marriage. Is there such a thing? I think no. What if they already have children together and decide to get married? Can they continue living together until they get married? It gets complicated with children already living in the home. That last statement, they, I would say I agree. It gets complicated. So there's a lot of questions there and, and issues that would have to be dealt with there. We can't answer all those right now, but let me, let me address common law marriage. Okay, so God-ordained marriage. God's the one designed and ordained marriage. Um, it mentions no, God mentions no common law marriage because it's got, marriage belongs to God. And so God created man and woman. God created marriage. Genesis 1 and 2 define marriage, the starting point. And Jesus refers back to it Matthew 19. Have you not heard or read in the beginning? So it goes back to Matthew, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 shows us the problem with marriage, sin, and how it affected marriage. Because the, the very first thing we see is not even the problem between God and man. We see the problem between Adam and Eve where they hid themselves. They covered themselves in shame whereas before there was no shame before sin. So it just goes down from there, okay? Um, and, and then we, we see ultimately the purpose of marriage, and, and God amp, amps it up and gives us a bigger picture and puts it in, in technicolor, where in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, Jesus says, or Paul says, marriage actually is pointed to Christ and his bride, the church. That's why when you get to Revelation chapter 19, you see the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hmm. So marriage points ultimately to God's covenant relationship with his bride, the church, Okay. All right, when there has been infidelity, how long before regular intimacy should return? I'm just going to read my answer here because it's so nuanced. There's so many things to consider there. There's no single answer to this question, as you've heard us say multiple times. I, I can't look, it's not a encyclopedia where I can look up every single issue in the Bible. It's a comprehensive lens for categories to help me make sense of the world. And God, through His Spirit who inspired this, gives us, through His grace and through His Spirit, the ability to, to build doctrine, to reprove where we're wrong, correct it, and train us in righteousness. That's, that takes time. We have to study. We have to seek it. We have to really work at it. And even then, we're fallible. Mm -hmm. We're not infallible. God's word is infallible. We're not infallible. We're finite human beings. That's why we try to do things in collective uh, nature. So there's no single answer. There could be numerous dynamics to consider. Seek wisdom alongside of the church leadership. An offending spouse has the duty of seeking forgiveness of an offended spouse. The offended spouse has the right to know and decide whether to forgive and be reconciled with the offending spouse. While God requires the offended spouse to forgive the offended spouse from the heart, he does not require the offended spouse to reconcile the marriage covenant breach caused by the offense, sexual immorality, or adultery. While Hosea provides the ideal example, and it does, but it, that shows us God's character and nature and his action. Hosea provides the ideal example for the offended spouse to receive the offended spouse back. Matthew 19, 9 allows the offended spouse the freedom to walk away from the marriage. This may not happen, or it may require an undetermined amount of time for it to happen. And that's in reference to regular intimacy. Okay? There's no, there's no set answer for this. It's that's, that's involved two human beings dealing with many complex issues. And there's a whole history there that has to be worked through. So, so we would love to give you just a straightforward, hey, four weeks, four years, four, 40 years. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but it does require wisdom, and it does require grace. And let me, let me just say it's in our, our questions. Everybody needs grace. Yeah, Paul said, I am all that I am except by the grace of God. So guess what? God gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so uh, that's the end of our questions for today. I can't remember if I said it at the beginning of this service or if I was only talking to the first service, but we got double the, the amount of questions that we went through. So we're actually going to extend this Q&A time to next Sunday as well. Hopefully Pastor Brad will be back and better um, to, to do that. <clears throat> um, but Well, I want you to hear the overarching theme is two things. Number one, anonymity really is the enemy of discipleship. It's not just a cute tagline that we put on a banner, though we did do that. Um, We want it to be a mantra that we as a church live by. And honestly, more than that, we want it to be a mantra that you live by. And so I can hear all the objections, right? I'm too busy. I'm too this, I'm too that. I can't find time to meet with people. Like, Listen, it is so important for you to be known. Walking through life in anonymity without the help and the, the counsel of the body of Christ is incredibly hard. The second, that's the importance of church membership, is once you submit yourself to the authority of the church, elders, overseers, pastors, um, when these issues arise, we would love to walk alongside you. And, and here, Scott and I, again, we've said it a thousand times, the caveat, like, This stuff is deep, it's hard, it's complex. And so we don't want you to walk through it alone. We don't want you to lean on your own understanding, but there's wisdom in multitude of counselors, and that's why we believe the things that we believe as a church. So I hope that you guys hear that and know that and and hear the the love and the care and the compassion that we're trying to exude from the stage while we're giving quick kind of black and white type answers. So let me go ahead and pray for us and our time together and kind of close this out. Lord, we thank you for your word and the truth that we can glean from it. And thank you for uh, all these questions that were submitted um, and the opportunity to just walk through what they are. And um, God, help us have wisdom. God, help us to know that every situation requires wisdom. Every situation has nuance. There's really a lot of things that are not just so easy in black and white, and there's so many dynamics at play. So Lord, help us have wisdom as we uh, navigate that. Give us as pastoral staff team the the wisdom and the care and the compassion to walk through this with people uh, Lord we uh, are just appreciative of the the body of Christ and what it is and what it represents and how it's supposed to function and Lord sometimes it's not functioning as it should be so Lord I pray that on both sides that we would submit ourselves to one another but Lord that that those um, on the other side that may uh, be having to wrestle with how to respond to someone, God, that you would give them grace, that you would help them to to not look at um, the speck in their, their brother's eye and ignore the log in their own. Help them to be gracious in receiving people who are broken, who are going through hard things. God, each and every one of us needs you, needs your love, needs your grace because we are sinful, fallible people. And so help us to, to lean into that and help the body of Christ to minister to us in such a way that pictures what your relationship with us is like, and what heaven is like. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, so listen, um, if you're new here... We would love to invite you to go meet uh, one of our pastors. So Pastor Scott has left. If you leave between these two rear doors right in the middle there, he's there. He's set up. There's a table with some gifts. He would love to meet you. He would love to get to know you a little bit more. So please swing by there and introduce yourself to him. Um, if anyone would like prayer or to walk through anything or something that's difficult, obviously a day like today and a topic like this can arise just a lot of questions or or difficult things within your life. So I want to let you know I'll be up here and available to pray with anyone if uh, you would like that, and so Pastor Scott's out there, um, and I'll be down front if anyone would like to pray as well. Um, I want to let you know about a couple things going on. Number one, uh, volleyball. I think it's starting this Friday, I believe it is, and so if you're interested, head to lhc.life slash volleyball. This isn't deeply spiritual or whatever. I get that.